welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Counterpunch is the website. That's where you need to go. Get your subscription to Counterpunch Plus. That's how you help keep Counterpunch moving and keep publishing all the great content every single day. You know it's there on the website every day. We also have exclusive content that is CP Plus only. You get that subscription, you get access to all of that, including all the great columns from Jeff Sinclair, all of the regulars at Counterpunch, many of the guest contributors as well. Um, Counterpunch Plus is a really good way to support Counterpunch and get something out of it. So do that. Do the thing. Go to the website. Make the donation. Do whatever. All right? Really appreciate that. So it's been a little while since I was able to do a podcast, and I figured we'd get on here today and talk about what the heck happened. What the heck happened to Counterpunch Radio and that weirdo who does it? So uh, here I am talking about that, and I have managing editor, or not managing editor anymore, just the editor, right? Josh, who are you? <laughs> I'm whatever you want me to be. Oh, wow. Oh, my. This is That's opening a can of worms there. But Josh Joshua Frank is with me today. He's the editor of Counterpunch. He is a swell guy. And um, Josh, what are we doing today? Uh, well, Eric, I thought we'd just chat a little bit about some of the stuff you've been dealing with for the past, what is it now, eight, nine months. I think, you know, people that uh, follow you, when you used to be on social media, we can talk about that as well, your exit from social media, uh, might have an idea of what's been going on a little bit. Um, but I thought that it'd be, you know, since you're, you're willing to talk about what's been going on, that this would be a good platform to do it and just let the listeners out there know uh, you have an abandoned counterpunch. <laughs> you're focusing on your health and you'll be back. But why don't you talk a little bit about what you've been dealing with and when it started and and just go from there sure uh so back in may um well yeah i guess i'll start there uh back in may um i had a very minor pain that i felt i wouldn't even call it pain i would say very minor feeling of tenderness in my uh one of my testicles so could have easily ignored that, but I, for whatever reason, something told me not to ignore it, or I felt like I shouldn't ignore it, which I normally would. So I ended up going to the urologist. The urologist uh, ordered up some ultrasounds and, um, you know, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, you know, maybe I had like some kind of an infection or maybe I have uh, something else going on. You know, I, I didn't know what to think. And then maybe there was a feeling in my mind that like, the worst case scenario in, in the back of my mind was maybe it's like testicular cancer or something like that, you know? So that was what I was really nervous about. I went in to see the urologist, the urologist ordered up ultrasounds, came in, uh, and basically told me to get my wife on the phone and told me that I don't have testicular cancer. There's nothing to worry about with regard to my testicle, but I have stage three kidney cancer. So that was like getting hit by a fucking truck. Um, I don't know how to describe what it felt like to hear that out of nowhere, uh, having had no indications of any kind. I had no physical symptoms other than what I just told you ended up sending me to the urologist in the first place. Other than that, I had no symptoms. I felt great. I was in the best health probably of my life, if not, um, certainly in the last number of years. Um, and then all of a sudden it was just like everything kind of shattered, you know? Um, yeah. and, uh, so this was on um this was on a monday 
I immediately was sent same day to go get CT scans to confirm what he had seen on the ultrasound. I went and got the CT scans. Of course, they confirmed it. Stage three, kidney cancer, large, large, uh, uh, very aggressive malignant tumor on my left kidney, uh, basically half of the whole kidney, the, the entire bottom half of it. So a very large tumor and um, that there's really only one course of action and that's surgery to take the kidney the whole kidney. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, so this, like I said, this was Monday, uh, May, uh, 21st, I think it was. And, uh, by Wednesday I was in New York city, uh, meeting with a, uh, surgeon who basically bumped me up the list And the following Tuesday, which was the day after Memorial day. Uh, I was first up for surgery seven o'clock in the morning. So, um, it really went from, diagnosis to surgery in literally seven days. So in that sense, I'm very lucky because a lot of people have to sit around and wait for surgery weeks, sometimes even months, you know? So in that regard, I'm very lucky. I'm extremely lucky to have caught it the way that it was caught, um, almost by chance. And, um, actually I suppose I should probably note that what I'm describing as far as the lack of symptoms is, common with kidney cancer. And it's one of the reasons why kidney cancer is a particularly dangerous cancer, because it doesn't really give a lot of symptoms. It's known as a silent killing cancer, you know, that people just find out too late, you know? So yeah. anyway, um, so the next week I was, I was in surgery. Uh, they took the kidney out. Everything was successful. I was home. Actually, I only spent one night in the hospital, but I can tell you truthfully that the next few nights at home were brutal, brutal. Um, the pain was quite a bit and it really wasn't from the surgery. It was actually gas pain from, well, from the procedure itself. It's like, mm -hmm. I don't even know how to describe it, but it was like, I couldn't move. I couldn't breathe. You know, it was so bad. Um, anyway, uh, so but it's also this, uh, Kidney cancer stage three at your age is very rare. Extremely rare. Uh, most people with kidney cancer of this kind, well, I, most people with kidney cancer are in their 60s and 70s and 80s. Um, I'm big. I'm very much an outlier. I'm very much mm -hmm. an outlier to have have had this at at 40. Um, so in that sense, uh, you know, so it's like it's a weird kind of. Uh, duality or whatever. Like I feel really lucky to have caught it and had my surgery as quickly as I did and be more or less okay, uh, afterwards. And also extremely unlucky that I'm even fucking dealing with this at this age. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's like, I have to, I feel both of those things at the same time, if that makes sense. Um, and the surgery itself was a success, right? Oh yeah. The surgery was a success. I'm, it's one of the, it's one of the really, um, fortunate things about living in New York city is that you are in close proximity to some of the world's best, you know, medicine and, 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 and surgeons and so forth. I've already been through this once with my son who had open heart surgery when he was born. So I already know the importance of having world-class surgeons that you have access to, you know, um, that yeah. was in, that was in 20, 2020. Um, but anyway, uh, so yeah, in that sense, I was, I'm lucky to have been, in New York city area to be able to go right to like Mount Sinai and go to like one of the best uro uro urological surgeons in the entire country who is like at the cutting edge of robotic surgery and all of that. So in that sense, you know, I was, I was very lucky. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I know that you 
after the diagnosis and probably up to now have really <laughs> racked your brain about what potentially could have caused this because typically are there environmental factors. I know we've gone down the rabbit hole uh, with different things, poisoned well water and <laughs> the whole gamut and still aren't really sure I what have was no behind idea. it. I have no idea. My my oncologist said that kidney cancer is from from what they from I guess the latest research, uh, kidney cancer is ninety seven percent environmentally acquired. Mm-hmm. So really, only like three percent of cases can be attributed to genetics. Now maybe I fall in that three percent. It's possible, you know. I mean, obviously some people do, um, but the overwhelming majority of these cases are attributed mm-hmm. to various environmental factors, uh, including, uh, you know, some of the more high profile ones that people have read about, like forever chemicals and some of the other mm-hmm. uh, really nasty pollutants and other things that are now in our groundwater and in, you know, streams and all over the place, thanks to our, you know, modern industry and so forth. Um, so anyway, I had looked into that possibility. I, I have a well uh, rather than municipal water. So I looked into the possibility that maybe my groundwater was contaminated. I had my groundwater tested for PFAS, those so-called forever chemicals. It came up negative, which I was shocked because I was sure that that was what caused it because without going too far down this rabbit hole, there are confirmed cases of PFAS contamination in the general area of the Hudson Valley that I live in. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like, out of the, it wasn't a stretch to think that maybe this was yeah. what happened, you know, but then when it's also did, in the end, it was kind of a relief because that means your, your family hasn't been drinking poison. Well, water. that's the, yeah. I mean, I was, I was just in pieces mentally thinking that yeah. like my children were being poisoned every day when they took their baths, that my wife was, you know what I mean? Like yeah. then it starts to snowball in your mind that like, <clears throat> oh my God, I picked this fucking house. I'm the one who wanted us to move here. Now I've, you know what I mean? Like yeah. so that, that it really kind of sends you into a little bit of a psychological tailspin. I mean, it did for me, certainly. Um, and that took a while, really, until I got the test results back. So, you know, the, yeah. the water test results. Um, so, but then it was like back to square one, you know, it was like, we'll get the results back, they're negative. It's like, cool, we're not being poisoned every day. But what the hell happened? Like, yeah, I'm still, you know, so I don't know. I, I have no I have no way of knowing. I don't know that I ever will know. Um, maybe something Maybe, maybe, maybe the water was contaminated at a different place that I lived. Maybe mm-hmm. something in New York City when I was still in the city. Maybe exposure to something else. Maybe it was medications that I took when I was a child. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that was something that was raised. Uh, uh, I had an endocrinologist when I was a kid because I was uh, short statured and there was a concern that I had a growth hormone issue. So I used to see an endocrinologist and I took uh, artificial growth hormone when I was a kid. Then mm. I met, I met with a doctor, uh, about six months ago who, or not even like three months ago, who raised the possibility, like you ever think maybe, maybe it was because of that. And I said, I didn't until just now. Thanks. Wow. You know? Um, yeah. so I don't, I really don't know. Um, and, and it was a cancer that had been growing for quite some time. Well, that's what my, that's what the surgeon, the urologist, uh, said. He, he said, based on, based on the size, based on the progression, he would assume that it had been in there at least five, six years, which is crazy to imagine. But, uh, that's what he said. 
Now, I, I don't know. It's it's impossible to know. Maybe it was like even faster growing than you could think. And it wasn't that long. I, I don't know. But it was massive. It was mm-hmm. massive. Um, yeah. And you have one more kidney. So that's good news, sure right? Do. Yeah. <laughs> um, so after the surgery, I know that you've gone through some treatments. You're in a trial. I don't know what all you can talk about there. I could talk about that. I'm doing a clinical trial. Um, so there's an experimental medication that I'm taking. I, I say experimental just because it's a clinical trial. It's not like it's like, you know, unknown. M- many thousands of people are in this trial. This is now like the third stage of it. It's basically like, by, as far as I understand it, it's basically the last step before FDA approval, basically. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, so I'm taking this medication, which is daily. And then in addition to that, I also do chemotherapy. Well, it's not technically chemotherapy. It's immunotherapy, but it's all the same. Like you sit in the chemo area with all the chemo patients and you get your infusion just like everybody else, you know. So um, but like it's more it's the kind of thing that you people probably people have seen on TV marketed as like Keytruda and other similar uh, products. So it's like, mm-hmm. you know, it's that that one, you know, that you're getting. But the treatment you potentially could be getting a placebo. Yeah. So it's a clinical trial where I'm doing this medication that could potentially be placebo. In addition to that, I get these infusions, which is, um, uh, you know, I get them regularly every six weeks and, um, yeah. And that's going to, that's a year long process. And that started, uh, in the summertime last summer. So in, 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 uh, basically the beginning of August. So I'm going to be doing this until August or the end of July. As far as you know, I mean, this is really preventable, prevent, preventative treatment. Yes. The the immunotherapy, the immunotherapy is designed to try to prevent this from coming back. Because as far Uh, as you know, also you're, you're cancer free at the moment. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. I mean, that's, that's the complication. Cause like when I had my surgery, I was happily and triumphantly on social, on, on Facebook being like, got my surgery. I'm out. I'm cancer free. You know, and then like my oncologist was like, yeah, not quite, you know, and it's like cancer cells are still floating around in your blood. Like that's part of cancer is that just because they remove the tumor, it doesn't mean that there's absolutely zero cancer. It just means that there's Mm -hmm. nothing identifiable at the moment and that they have to continue monitoring that and so forth. And that the cancer cells travel around throughout your body and they look for different organs to attach to and so forth. So it's all very scary and very horrible. Um, but anyway, um, so the immunotherapy is basically, and I mean, if there's any medical people who are listening to this and could absolutely correct me, I totally would be willing to accept that because I might not be totally correct. But my basic understanding of it is that the immunotherapy is supposed to suppress the creation of the proteins that would lead to cancerous tumors from forming essentially mm-hmm. so it's supposed to suppress that the creation. treatment that you know that you're receiving not the yeah that's the trial. that's right that's the that's the uh immunotherapy the other medication or placebo i don't know and i won't know um i don't know if i'm ever going to know actually because mm. i'm not i'm not totally clear if they ever tell you or if they tell you several <laughs> years later after the trial's over or what all i know is that i the only thing i will know is the type of uh the type of medication it was if the cancer were to come back because then it has to be made part of my medical history. Mm-hmm. So like then I would know, but that won't happen unless obviously the worst happens and the cancer comes back. Yeah. And these treatments, 
obviously the 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 stress of what you've been going through the just the physical exhaustion that this causes plus you have a regular job and children and a life um but i know that these treatments have also been kind of wiping you out a little bit it's exhausting uh I don't know how to explain it really. It's not, it's not like a physical exhaustion. It's, it's, it's a, it's a kind of mental exhaustion that doesn't mental exhaustion almost doesn't really encapsulate it. It's, it's, it's like, uh, a it's like a long COVID sort of like brain fog. Sort of, yeah. I mean, it's a, you know, the, it's sort of a fogginess, a kind of inability to, focus the way that I normally would focus, uh, a difficulty recalling information that I would normally be able to recall very easily, um, getting confused by things that shouldn't be confusing to me, like, for instance, uh, you know, reading um, alternate train schedule and understanding that like, okay, the train is actually going to this station and not to this station, which is a very basic thing for any person who lives in New York. But it's like, for whatever reason, it was fucking confusing to me you know what i mean like i just couldn't i don't know i don't know how to explain it you know and um so anyway so my uh so my doctor had recommended that i read up on something called chemo brain so i did and seems seems like kind of what i feel like i'm going through in the sense of like this sort of haziness and fogginess and difficulty focusing Mm -hmm. difficulty remembering um my understanding is that chemo brain is supposed to be temporary and that it's supposed to go away once you're done with your chemo. Um, so I have to hope that that's, that's the case because I definitely don't feel like myself. I mean, I definitely don't feel mentally like myself. Mm -hmm. Well, and anybody that's been through an extreme amount of stress too, knows that's the other impact. And that's the other thing. And if you follow me on social media, I didn't even talk about it on the podcast here, but if you follow me on social media, you know that we had a horrible tragedy in my family two months before this happened. My mother-in-law was struck by a car. She was in a coma. It shattered our family. And then eight weeks later, I got my diagnosis. So it was all like very close together. 2023 was a shitty year. The worst year. And where was I supposed to be the night that that happened? I was literally, I was literally on my way up to moderate your book event in Albany. Yeah, <laughs> and when that when that happened, so that was that was insane. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, like I said, you know, not even eight weeks later, it was I got my diagnosis. So I mean, in the end, I mean, the worst is my wife. <laughs> my wife's twenty twenty three was yeah beyond horrible, beyond yeah. horrible. So. Um, so talking about social media a little bit, you've exited from social media. Bless you for that. (laughs) I'm sure that's been good and bad in so many ways. Um, but I know people have missed you on social media and your hot takes and, uh, you know, no, no signs of coming back. That's tough, man. I, I feel bad because I do feel a certain kind of obligation to be public to be publicly available in this way, like on social media, especially now with everything that's going on in Gaza and, and, and Eastern Europe and Africa and a thousand other things that need to be talked about. So there is a part of me that feels a tremendous sense of guilt in not being around and commenting and active and putting out videos and podcasts and writing. And, you know, I, there's a, I really do like feel a tremendous sense of guilt about that. But at the same time, it's like, 
like I was saying, it's so hard. I don't know why. It's just, it's very difficult for me to psychologically or mentally like get the energy together for it. Mental mm -hmm. energy, you know, um, to want to engage in this way, like doing the podcast, honestly, the podcast part is the easy part. You know what I mean? Sitting and talking and then doing the editing, that's the easier part. The harder part is engaging with the broader left, identifying people that I want to talk to, reaching out to them, arranging times, finding time in my schedule, their schedule, sitting down and doing it, right? That There's like a certain kind of social uh, uh, energy you have to have or social engagement, you know what I mean? And it's like, if you stop, like for me, like I kind of stopped consuming a lot of content, you know, content online. So I wasn't really feeling the motivating sort of energy to reach out to people, you know what I mean? And then obviously being off social media just makes that even easier to just like be like kind of separated from it. It's not that I stopped reading the news. I didn't, obviously I sit and read the news every day, but yeah. the public engagement with the issue has been difficult not because i don't want to i do that's where the guilt comes from but there's a, some other part of me that's like you don't have that in you right now man you, you you just don't have that in you right now you need to just back off a little bit you know yeah and i'm kind of like well i mean i think that even people that haven't gone through what you've gone through can relate to that having to exit from engaging on a lot of these things because it's you know it's a mental health issue as well and i think even broader on the left and activists, you know, we do have to take breaks in order to recharge ourselves as well. So I know I get, that your you know, goal is ultimately to come back and, uh, you know, have a regular I've never taken podcast. A break. I had never taken a break. Right. I didn't even know that that was allowed. <clears throat> yeah. You know what I mean? To be perfectly honest with you. Um, you know, um, ever since I had become public with politics and media and such, I had never taken a break. Um, I just, didn't seem like a break was something you could do. Like, this is just what you do. This is part of you, who you are. This is part of your life. This is what mm. you do. And now that all of this has happened, I didn't even really think of it as like a break. And I certainly didn't plan it to be that way. It just was like a switch turned off. And I was just like, I can't do this right now. Like, I just can't do this right now, you know? And mm. then, and then a week became a month and a month became two and two became four, you know what I mean? And it's just like, or however long it's been now. I guess I stopped, I guess I officially got off social media in like early July or something. So yeah, know, right around when I started. Well, you got off of social, social media, media for other reasons as well, right? Weren't you compromised? Well, that's, that's, the, uh, yeah, I had a, I had an issue like that, but that wouldn't have kept me off social media permanently really. Cause that was just a matter of locking down and then reopening my stuff. You know, that wasn't like that big of a deal. I had my, I had my information hack, but a lot of people get that, you know, that happens. Yeah. That's fairly common. You know, um, it really was more about, um, just not having the energy for it, you know? And I look, Anybody who's at anybody who's a regular on left wing social media knows how absolutely uh, exasperating it can be. You know what I well, mean? Well, and, and just, Twitter's only gotten worse. So oh, I, I'm not even. Yeah, yeah, Twitter doesn't even enter. I'm saying social media. I'm really only thinking about Facebook. To be perfectly yeah, honest yeah. with you, because I, Twitter is just like, yeah, is it even called Twitter anymore? Who knows? No, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you talking about a lot of this. I know it's personal and. Uh, you do talk about personal stuff on the podcast now and then, but 
we have had a lot of people reach out concerned, wondering where you've been. <laughs> I've been so- meaning to record something like this for months, to be perfectly honest with you. And it's not just for counter punchers. There's also people who, who, who support me on Patreon, who yeah. bless them, haven't canceled their subscriptions, despite the fact that I haven't put out much uh, in a while. But, um, you know, it, that's what it is, man. I mean, people, everybody's struggling these days. Everyone has to count every dollar. I would never fault anybody for canceling a subscription or whatever. I, I would do the same if a person wasn't putting stuff out, you know, but it sucks for me too, because I feel this weird conflict between desperately wanting to fulfill an obligation to other people who are supporting my work and Counterpunch, obviously. And at the same time being like, I just don't have it in me right now. Yeah. I mean, I think I think everybody can can understand that and empathize with with that. So yeah, I mean that's what it is. I I, I do plan on bouncing back. You know, I do. I I do think that um, I do think that this is all hopefully temporary. Hopefully, I will come out of this and not have uh, this come back. I guess that's the other thing I should have mentioned. Problem the problem with kidney cancer, it has an extremely high you know, rate of return, I guess, you know, it, it, it comes back 50% of the time for people within the first five years. So it has an extremely high, uh, recurrence rate, much higher than other cancers, you know? So, um, that's the other concern in all of this too, is that, you know, I mean, I'm only 40, like I still in theory have a lot of years ahead of me. Well, but, and also one of the benefits for you is that you're young. You that's know? the, yeah, that's the other thing that that's I the think the recidivism thing. rate is probably a much lower depending on your age. I don't know. I don't know that. I don't know if the rate, if the rate is lower based on your age, but I do know that because of my age, I'm able to physically tolerate this much better than yeah. people who would have underlying conditions and be much older. You know, I really don't have any physical side effects from the chemo. Um, mm-hmm. I don't feel anything physically, but now I definitely have to admit that I have this mental thing going on. Um, I, I would say I only really became cognizant of that in the last two months. Um, I guess it probably takes several months before that really kicks in, I guess, you know? Um, yeah. But well, yeah I'm, so. you're, I'm sure you're, you're, you know, you're functioning in a state of shock for months. Yeah, but I think that by the time that I started the chemo, I don't know that I was really in shock anymore. And I felt really good about the fact that I would sit down and do these infusions, then just like get up and like go to work, you know what I mean? And be fine uh, physically. And then all of a sudden, the mental stuff kind of snuck up on me, I guess you could say. Um, And that's where I am now. You know, I'm definitely in the middle of that as I have now like around the six month mark of this treatment. So, you know, I have another six months to go and we'll see. I I would like to think that once I'm done with the infusions, gradually this like fog is going to clear or whatever the hell it is, you know? Mm -hmm. And then going forward for you after you're done with your treatments with this current round annually or six months, you'll have to continue to go in and get your blood checked your urine check. Oh, more often than that, I think. Yeah. But uh, I, it's going to be, I think every, every, I think it's going to be every three months um, I'm doing CT scans. I mean, I have been, I have been doing regular CT scans ever since this as part of the follow-up from the surgery and also as part of this clinical trial that I'm doing. Um, so 
luckily, thankfully, I'm I'm clear as of a couple of weeks ago. CT scans came back clean, so that's good. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any event, uh, CT scans regularly, um, and uh, yeah, my I get my blood checked. I feel like every day, you know what I mean? It's yeah. like it, it's like you know couple times a month, you know? Um, and it sucks. That sucks, especially for me because I don't have the best veins. So it's like not always the easiest process <laughs> to like get my blood, you know? But anyway, you know, so dealing with that, I'm, I don't know. I don't know, Josh, I don't know that there's really all that much else to say. Um, yeah. you know, that's, that's, that's what it is. And, and it sucks that like, as this has all happened, you know, the Gaza war and everything else is such a big issue has been such, you know, burning at the forefront of everybody's thinking. And I'm like sitting here being like, yeah, I can't right now, you know? So yeah. like I said, I feel, I feel guilt. I feel guilt about that. I mean, I did put out a video. I did, you know, I have done a couple of podcasts, you know, Yoav was on the show and, you know, we've, uh, Arun was on the show and talking about, you know, various aspects of the situation, but it's just, I don't know, not enough, I guess, you know, it's such, it's, it's of such great global importance. I feel like I should be putting things out every day, but I just don't. Well, I know that the counterpunch community, I know that your supporters on Patreon and others will be ready for you whenever you're ready. So, and I know that, that, you know, the people that do know what you've been going through, you have a ton of support and, uh, Thanks, I know buddy. the counter the counterpunch community is a family of sorts. We're you know it might be dysfunctional. We might yell at each other, but ultimately we're all in the same struggle together. So, uh, yeah. I, you know, you're a big part awesome. of that, and you're Thanks, a big part buddy. of the, the counterpunch family as well. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, I counterpunch is the greatest. Um, you know that's why I keep telling people to subscribe. I've been doing that for years and years now because you know I mean I I subscribe to counterpunch. <laughs> There's a reason counterpunch is great. Um, And especially now, I mean, you know, Josh, you and I have talked about this. Like I read the politics of anti-Semitism so many years ago, like when I, when I was like barely even conscious of what counterpunch was or even of the real issues in Palestine. And I remember reading that and learning about who Edward Said was, but also who Alexander Coburn was, who Jeffrey Sinclair was. And it was like, counterpunch has always been there on on palestine i mean for me at least always always you know especially as a kid who grew up with zionist propaganda it was really powerful Mm -hmm. to come across it and you know counterpunch has sort of held to that held that flag in place you know while a lot of other media outlets have not including those that you know tilt liberal and are finding ways to excuse well it's amazing how so many of those issues that you know, I was reading Counterpunch back when I was in college, and so many of these issues are, uh, you know, being raised again in this current conflict, in this current environment on college campuses and everywhere, right? Uh, and Counterpunch is one of the few outlets that has been talking about this for a long, been publishing 30 years, about this yeah. for 30 years. 30 years Counterpunch has been on that, and a yeah. lot of other publications have not. Even those that have come around in recent years, you should read what they were publishing 25 years ago, you know? And yeah. so, like, people can take issue with various things that, that get published in Counterpunch. I know you and I talk about it all the time, you know? Oh, did you see that piece? That was great. Did you see that piece? I didn't like that, you know? But... That's part of what makes Counterpunch awesome. You know what I mean? Is that like, it is that place where you can go and you can find that. And quite frankly, I mean, some of these books that Counterpunch has published over the years are like, 
permanent fixtures on my bookshelf, you know, yeah. for a reason, not because I'm, you know, work with Counterpunch. Well, Jeff because... and I talk about it often, you know, you come to Counterpunch and you're, you're likely to, to be angry one day and excited the next. So, so that's sort of, the... Oh man. Yeah. It's like, like, like how much hate mail I got on <laughs> Ukraine and then instantly turned to support on the Gaza thing. It's like, you know, it's like, you're so stupid on Ukraine, but you understand Gaza and Palestine. Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, maybe I understand more than you think. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for taking the time, Eric. And yeah. I know we all look forward to you making a return and you do it That's at your pace point. and at your schedule. And we'll, we'll I'll be, be back. here when you're ready. Yep. I'll be back. No, 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 uh, no worries there. I'll definitely be back as soon as I can. And uh, I really appreciate Everybody continuing to support Counterpunch and those people reaching out to me, of course, I really appreciate that. And Josh and Jeff and Becky and Nat and everybody, you know, I appreciate all of you guys very, very much. Cool. All right, everybody. That's the uh, that's the tearjerker episode. So we'll uh, we'll 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 talk again very, very soon. Take care. Support Counterpunch. See you soon.